This is episode 19 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Russ Campbell. Russ received his degree in physical therapy from Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois in 1989. He is the co-developer of the Effective Swallowing Protocol, ESP, and CEO of AmpCare, an FDA-registered medical device and services company that develops innovative technologies designed to improve the quality of life in people with swallowing disorders. He has 28 years of experience in electrotherapy and has presented AmpCare's products in the U.S., Europe, Japan, and Hong Kong. Russ is responsible for the research and development of the company's products and methodology, as well as guiding the company's growth through partnerships with other healthcare providers. In this episode, we discuss to be or not to be, the role of neuromuscular electrical stimulation, abbreviated NMES, applied to patients with dysphagia. So we will discuss muscle fiber types and recruitment philosophies, as well as using AmpCare's effective swallowing protocol, ESP, as a form of NMES, so from parameters to placement to plasticity. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I just want to say thank you so much to everyone who has contributed to our Patreon fund. Um, If you're not familiar with that, It's essentially a crowdfunding website. Basically, if you believe that this podcast provides massive value to you and your career, uh, then we just ask that you give some of this value back. There's so many hours that go into making this. There's so many volunteer hours from so many awesome SLPs that work day jobs that are helping me do this because they believe in it and they love it, but I'd love to be able to reward reward the team and keep them on, you know, long-term. So if you are interested, I'm even asking just a quarter an episode Um, Of course, we would love anything more, uh, but you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride. And again, no obligation, but we would be eternally grateful for the support. We are so close to 20,000 listeners. That is nuts to me. I think we're at about 19,000 and some odd, 19,400 or something. So, so close to 20,000 weekly listeners. Uh, We've been holding steady right around number 30 uh, on the iTunes charts for science and medicine. That is nuts, too. Um, We are coming up on episode 20, and we are slowly approaching 250,000 downloads. So I'm trying to think of something fun to do for that big occasion. Maybe I'll let somebody interview me or something fun. But anyways, any support you can give to keep this podcast going Go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash swallow your pride. And I'm so excited for this episode. Um, I know you guys have heard me um, promote this AMP Care course in the past, and they also have a um, NMES device that can be used. And I, I'm really passionate about this course only because I think it's so thorough in explaining so much of the underlying muscle fibers and muscle physiology that a lot of us just don't get educated on in grad school. And, you know, I, I think it's funny that, you know, I, I interviewed another PT recently and Russ, our guest today is a PT, but 
you know, I, I love that we can have these podcasts and, and be open and learning from our colleagues that have had far more extensive training in some of these areas than we have. So when he presented this material, so much of it just hit home with me. So, you know, I really hope that, that you guys will learn something from today's episode as well. And I do want to suggest that you guys download the show notes and have them in front of you while you're listening to this episode. I know it's more of a homework assignment uh, than it is actually leisurely listening, but Russ put together an awesome, awesome outline today for you, and there's lots of diagrams, and it would just be really helpful if you had it in front of you. It might help you understand the concepts a little bit more, so you can get those at swallowyourpridepodcast.com, or remember, you can text to 44222, text SYP019, that's SYP019, to 44222 to get the show notes emailed directly to you. And um, if you are interested in taking this course and your facility might be interested in purchasing the device, you can go to swallowtherapy.com forward slash SYP for an exclusive discount for Swallow Your Pride listeners. And just a heads up, I do get a small commission um, if you use that link, which helps to keep this podcast free to all of you. And of course, we have to thank our December sponsor, EndoHD. That's www.ndohd.com forward slash contact for more information. They are a true high definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by SLPs. And also, since the year is winding down, I just wanted to remind you about MedBridge. I know I'm a broken record when I talk about them, but their courses are phenomenal. Uh, Some top-notch ASHA fellow researchers are the ones presenting this material. So uh, at this point, you have a few more days to get your CEUs for December. So you might as well hop on. It's $95 for unlimited CEUs, but it's also good for one calendar year. So you can, you'll be able to use that next year as well. So Uh, Go to medbridgeeducation.com, select speech language pathology, select the premium plan, and with the SYP promo code, you get the free upgrade to the premium plan for only 95 bucks. So uh, hop on that, and I am really excited for today's episode. Hello, Russ. Teresa, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, and congratulations on the success of this podcast. Thank you. It's pretty wild. <laughs> Luckily, I had no idea what I was getting into when I signed up to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, look, the goal is uh, education, and I think uh, absolutely. I think you're doing a great job with it. So, let's proceed. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on. You know, it's so funny. I had another PT this morning that I interviewed too. So it was funny. You know, I was just telling him I I love that we're at this point in our field now where we realize that we have so little research in dysphagia, and it's still a very you know, premature time in our field. So it's nice that we can reach out to the other fields and, you know, take some expertise that you guys can provide us. Yeah, I've always felt working with two speech and language pathologists, Rick and Rhonda, that uh, it's been an interdisciplinary care approach. And I think that's the way we look at it. And shame on me initially for not knowing a whole lot about what you all did, but you all have been kind of suspicious people. You take our patients from the gym, (laughs) take them into rooms and shut the door behind you. So it wasn't until Rick and Rhonda kind of came out of those rooms where I started to figure, well, what are you all doing there? You know? So oh my God. I think uh, that started back about 20, oh my gosh, 24 years ago. So it's a good thing. Um, you know, you guys kind of brought me to the attention of what you're doing and maybe we can share some of our ideas, help both of our professions along. Yeah. Yeah. I gave a little bit of background of who you are, but why don't you tell a little bit more? Oh, sure. So my name is Russ Campbell and I'm a physical therapist uh, by trade. So whenever I talk to a group of professionals, it's a little different than the, 
a different discipline of that on my own, there's a tendency to have a few red flags go up. Like, what are you doing on this podcast? Yeah. <laughs> um, so let me give you a very brief background check on me. So I guess you all can feel confident that I'm competent to present this material. <laughs> Um, I graduated from Northwestern University back in 1989. I've been a practicing clinician for the past 28 years. Uh, Throughout my professional career, I've used modalities, specifically neuromuscular electrical stimulation combined with a holistic approach. What does holistic mean to me? Manual stretching, combining that with bracing, and then using bracing as a form of resistive exercise to foster better or faster outcomes for my patients. And although I've only been working with speech language pathologists, Uh, I'm patients with dysphagia for the past, I would say, about 24 years. All 24 years have been developing and utilizing a technology called uh, the Effective Swallowing Protocol, or what we call ESP. I'm a co-developer of ESP, and I'm a co-founder, along with Rick McAdoo and Rhonda Polanski, of this FDA-registered medical device and services company known as AmpCare. An AMP is a unit of electrical current that we use to care for patients. So how's that? Sounds good. You got me. (laughs) You sold me. All right. right. I'm I'm really excited about this topic today. Um, And and I love that, you know, Russ wanted to pick his own title. Usually I get to pick the titles, but he told me what the title is going to be. Well, look, I wasn't sure what to do. So you said put together a presentation and you got to start somewhere. You got to have a title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is to be or not to be. And what are we going to talk about today, Russ? Well, I just think um, the first step before we even consider any form of electrical stimulation is um, muscle fiber types and recruitment philosophies. Try to improve our understanding of muscle fiber types in our body and how they're recruited to cause these muscles to contract. So I thought that would be a great place to start. And then if we have more time, we can probably consider placement parameters and plasticity and how that all comes together. Maybe we talk too long and we have to make that a podcast if your listeners care about me talking any more. Yes. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm going to let you, let you take it away. All right. So in my opinion, I think when we talk about swallowing to me, it's just a lot of movement. And when you're talking about movement, that's obviously musculature. So we look at it from the time I put something in my mouth to the time it gets into my gut, about 50 muscles, approximately 50 muscles have to fire. And when you just talk about muscles that have to get that bolus past your airway, 29, approximately 29 muscles, most of them are paired, right? But they fire in one second to get that bolus past our airway. So I guess I start off with the question of how do we get our patients to move when they have impaired movements? And to me, I think neuromuscular electrical stimulation is an excellent choice to consider when you need to facilitate a muscle or to get it to move. And then in some cases, you can use it as a facilitation for some muscles as well as resistance to other muscles. So when a patient has difficulty moving, we can apply electrical stimulation to any part of the body where the nerve, the peripheral nerve is intact, and we can get that muscle to do its function. I can put an electrode on your quad and get your knee to start to extend. I can put it on your wrist extensor and get your hand to start to pull up. So if I take those philosophies and I put it underneath your chin, submentally, I can certainly start to get the anterior digastric, the mylohyoid, some superficial suprahyoid muscles to start to initiate hyoid movement. And then hopefully the more intensity they take, we can carry some of that movement down the kinetic chain of uh, the body throughout the swallowing mechanism. So the best place I think to start is to understand that the muscle fibers are grouped 
according to the kind of tissue they're found in in your body. So let's start very broad and just say that we have obviously three different types of muscles. We have cardiac muscle, smooth muscle, and then skeletal. And basically these muscles are grouped to where they're located. Obviously cardiac muscle are found around the walls of the heart. And then uh, their contraction control is involuntary. Uh, the heart beats on its own, right? And then we have smooth muscle, obviously, and it lines the walls of hollow uh, internal structures. Think of your esophagus, right? It's got esophageal peristalsis. We don't control that. One smooth muscle that we hope to have entire control of our entire life is our detrusor muscle. It's the muscle inside your bladder, right? We don't want to lose control of that smooth muscle. Otherwise, we're going to have a lot of incontinence. So that's one muscle that is a smooth muscle that, that's why we say the control is usually involuntary, but there are some smooth muscles we have voluntary control over, and that detrusor is one of them. And then the muscle that we're going to focus on for the rest of this podcast is going to be the skeletal muscle. And the skeletal muscle attaches to bone. And in some cases, these skeletal muscles attach to other connective tissues, and they're usually voluntary, right? So my biceps attaches to a bone, and I can bend my elbow, and it moves my hand to my mouth. My quadriceps attaches to my tibial plateau in my shin, and if I voluntarily tighten my quadriceps muscle, I can straighten my knee. So you take that same philosophy, most of these suprahyoidal muscles, three out of the four all end in hyoid, right? Mylohyoid, geniohyoid, stylohyoid. So we know they attach to your hyoid and they're a skeletal muscle. So if I take the 60 plus years that I have in my field of how electrical stimulation can facilitate muscles, I can certainly apply it to some very, very superficial muscles. I don't want to get into these. I'd love to get deep, but when you're talking about superficial electrical stimulation, you're really only looking at the very superficial layers. And we can certainly get to these suprahyoidal muscles to facilitate hyoid movement. And because the hyoid attaches to the larynx via a thyrohyoid ligament and a thyrohyoid membrane, these are like ropes or a sheath if I can get the hyoid to move, I can certainly pull on that thyroid cartilage. And then if I can pull on that, I can certainly pull on other structures. So once we get the hyoid and larynx moving in the right direction, some good things can happen. Again, just trying to create movement to an area that has some impaired movement. All right. So far, so good? So far, so good. Loving it. All right. So these skeletal muscles, skeletal muscles are constantly adapting and changing depending on need and demand, Right. So you go skiing, you bust and break an arm, and your arm's locked in a 90-degree angle with a cast. After four to six weeks, they remove that cast. What has happened? Your muscles have shortened, right? So they're constantly adapting uh, depending on their need and demand. Obviously, if we don't use it, we... You lose it. Right on, sister. You got it. <laughs> so let's move on. So a little bit about muscle tissue. It's certainly highly specialized fibers, used to generate force. That's what we want to do. We want to, we want to move structures with this. And we use nerves to connect our spinal cord to the muscle. So basically, we got this central nervous system, brain and spinal cord, that connects to our peripheral nerves. And those peripheral nerves go to the muscle. And it's this neuromuscular junction or motor point where that nerve innervates that muscle. And the importance of these neuromuscular junctions or motor points with electrical stimulation, when we talk about neuromuscular electrical stimulation, if you place your electrode over these neuromuscular junctions or motor points, you can elicit the most efficient contraction with the least amount of pain, right? And I don't know if you've heard of it. I know you're more diagnostics, but the biggest complaint of electrical stim, what do people complain the most of electrical stim? Hey, it can hurt, Russ. 
And now we're going to put it on one of the most rich and diverse sensory systems of the entire body. We crank up this card and it hurts. So one of the ways we look at how to make this more comfortable for the patient is to get an electrode that can cover or completely smother all of these neuromuscular junctions. So that's why Ampcare's electrode is a unique size and shape, and it's a little bigger than most electrodes because we're trying to completely smother the uh, suprahyoidal musculature, specifically that anterior digastric mylohyoid and possibly getting as deep as the geniohyoid, right? We want to make sure we're smothering all those neuromuscular junctions because now we're going to get the most efficient contraction with the least amount of pain. Yeah. A smaller electrode, it may not cover all those neuromuscular junctions, so you need more current so it will disperse away from the electrodes and it might get to those other neuromuscular junctions, but it's not going to be as efficient or effective. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't think it was painful. I was resistant. I was resistant to it for a while, but I finally let Rick do it. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. And I was surprised. Oh, so when you said you didn't feel it was painful, Rick put uh, ESP on you. Yes. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. And I actually let him crank it up a few times. So. And did you experience a motor contraction? Yes, it was the weirdest feeling ever. Perfect. Could you feel the hyoid or larynx move? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Fantastic. So so imagine you have a patient that doesn't know how to do a Mendelssohn, yeah. right? Yeah. Basically, what ESP does is it facilitates the range in motion of the hyolaryngeal complex, right? Yeah. It doesn't do a Mendelssohn. We, we're, this current's not going to affect the airway, but at least we can get the things moving in the right direction. And once you do that, it's amazing what you can see happening. And uh, I'd love to talk a little bit more, but let's not jump <laughs> okay. off the track of what we're okay. here for. So now let's talk about a global view of what a motor unit is, because that's what we're trying to do with neuromuscular electrical stimulation. We're trying to stimulate a nerve. We're trying to stimulate a nerve to polarize it so that we can facilitate a muscle or group of muscles to treat a problem uh, and then address that cause. That's basically what we're doing. So we're using neuromuscular electrical stim to stimulate these motor units. What's a motor unit? Motor unit consists of a nerve, and inside that nerve you have billions, with a B, billions of neurons, which then go to a neuromuscular junction, which innervates that muscle fiber. And inside that muscle fiber you have these myofibrils, and inside the myofibrils you have billions, with a B, billions of what we call myofilaments. And these myofilaments are called actin and myosin. So the myosin is their, the thicker filament, and the actin is the thin filament. And these filaments are in repeating sections. There's, there's units of these filaments inside these myofibrils. So consider these individual sections inside this myofibril that are all working together. So what basically happens? Our brain sends an electrical impulse down our spinal cord through the nerve, through the neuromuscular junction, deep inside that muscle fiber, all the way down to these myofilaments. And it tells the myosin to grab the actin and pull the actin on the left side of the unit to the right and the right side of the unit to the left. And when you pull on both sides, this sarcomere, this actin and myosin, this individual unit becomes smaller or shortens. And when you have billions of these sarcomeres, all shortening at once, it causes the entire muscle to contract. And when it contracts, we can get it to move, right? Makes sense. So for, I don't know, maybe this helps. I, I, when we do this training, it's visual. So for those people that might need a little bit more of a visual model, that might be primitive. If you think of a paper towel, the cardboard tube of a paper towel, that's your muscle fiber, okay? That's a skeletal muscle fiber. 
if we start shoving a bunch of straws in that tube, the straws are the myofibril, okay? And inside those straws, if we put toothpicks, that's the thicker myofilament, that's the myosin. And then if we alternate toothpick and thread, like a, just a thread, a thin thread, that's the actin. So if you alternate toothpick, thread, toothpick, thread, toothpick, thread, inside these straws, and these straws, you, you pinch, they're segmented, they're individual units. That's a primitive kind of a muscle fiber. And basically what we're trying to do is get the myosin to grab the actin and shorten these sarcomeres to get the muscles to contract. And the last visual I'll try to give some of these listeners because I'm sure they're doing this sometimes when I'm doing it, driving a car, which we probably shouldn't be, right? We need to be paying attention <laughs> right. to roads and things. Right. But the last visual I can give, if I have you and I, and since you brought up Rick, the big fella, <laughs> oh, God. to my left, and we're all holding hands. So we're standing next to one another, but we have our arms completely extended. We don't, let's say we don't really like each other. We're staying as okay. far away as we can. Okay. So we are a sarcomere. I've got you on my right and Rick on my left. When that electrical current comes down from our brain and goes through the nerve and goes into that muscle fiber, what basically it does is it causes all of our elbows to contract, right? Think about it. If my elbows contract and Rick's and yours elbows contract, what happens to us? We go from being far apart to being really close together. And that's basically what's going down. So let's put it to an actual thing that happens every morning. Five o'clock, my alarm goes off, right? I'm laying in bed. That message from my brain, my brain perceives the alarm clock. It sends a message down my spinal cord to my abdominal muscles. And what do they do? My actin grabs, my myosin grabs my actin in my abdominal muscles, and I sit up because I hear my alarm, right? And uh, then I'll use my arm to turn my alarm off. Now, what happens? I told you muscles, they are constantly adapting. So if I don't use my abdominal muscles, I lose Rick, let's get rid of Rick first. Okay. All right? So we lose Rick. Now, that's what happens. If we lay in bed, we, we don't, these sarcomeres, they don't get smaller. They slough off. We lose them. So if I'm young and healthy, I've got you and Rick. We're strong enough. We can sit ourselves up and we can hold our sitting balance. But if I lay in my bed and don't move and stay there for a couple of weeks, I start to lose these sarcomeres. So we slough off. We lose Rick. So the next morning, the alarm goes off. I can still sit up, but maybe I don't sit up as quickly. Or maybe when I sit up, I don't have the stability that I had before because I lost Rick, right? Yeah. But I'm still able to function. But boy, if I keep laying in that bed, God forbid, guess who I lose? Me. Teresa, which I don't want to lose right now, right? <laughs> right. So, but I lose you. So if I lose you, now I may not have the ability to sit up, right? And I don't have that muscle movement. And uh, if you don't have movement, I said swallowing to me is all about movement. That's going to lead to dysphagia. Does that make sense? Are we good with that? Absolutely. Is that true? That's enough analogies I can give you. That's the best I got. That's good. That's good. All right. So let's move on. Now we know how skeletal muscle works. It's through these myofilaments, this actin and myosin, and realize these actin and myosins make up individual units that make up these myofibrils that turn into muscle fibers. So now that we know we've got skeletal muscle fibers, these muscle fibers are broken up into two types. Type 1, which are called slow-twitch muscle fibers, and they're primarily used for cellular respiration. They require or have a lot of high endurance because they have high levels of mitochondria and myoglobin. Myoglobin is a red blood cell. Um, it carries oxygen, 
And when you look at these cells, these muscle cells under a microscope, they appear more red or darker because of the myoglobin protein that they have. So think of these type ones as having a lot of energy for high endurance, but they don't have a lot of power. And they're fatigue resistant. They can go all day. They just don't have a lot of oomph behind them. So another way I like to think of the type one muscle fiber is it's an economy car. Think of your Ford Focus, your, your Chevy Sonic, your Toyota Prius. They go a long way on a little bit of gas, right? Um, but they don't have a lot of pickup, right? Right. Okay, so that's the type one. Now, the type two are known as fast twitch muscle fibers, and they're relatively low endurance. They're typically used for bursts of strength. They can sustain a muscle contraction, but they can't do it for a significant period of time. Think of these as they're somewhat adaptable, but they're not as efficient. They're certainly not as efficient as the type one, but they're great for force. If we need power, we need speed, it's the type two muscle fiber. Okay. And then uh, just know that they're just not, they don't have a lot of endurance. We use them primarily for strength. Okay. And then the type two, unfortunately, we have to go that they can be broken down into type two A's and type two B's. Think of the type two A as the hybrid. It's the intermediate. It does a little bit of endurance. It does a little bit of strength. It's, it's not as efficient as the type one, but it is efficient, right? And it is adaptable because it has endurance and it has uh, strength. And the type 2B is the fastest, the most powerful uh, muscle fiber you have. It's the best force generator you have. And when you look at a type 2B under a microscope, it appears white because it doesn't use oxygen, primarily uses sugar, glycogen to, uh, to work. So you can notice that under a microscope. Neat. So, all right. So if you look up most of these rehab books, you're going to see charts on muscle fiber types, type 1s, type 2As, and type 2Bs. And you're going to see things like contraction time. Obviously, the type 1s are slow to contract. The type 2Bs are very, very fast to contract. And the type 2As are everything in between, right? So endurance, type 1s are very high in endurance. As I said, type 2Bs, very low in endurance. The type 2As are intermediate. They have a little bit of both. As far as fatigability, the type 1s are very low to fatigue. The type 2Bs are very fast to fatigue. When you start talking about power, the type 1s are very low in power. The type 2Bs are very, very high in power, speed, strength. And what you need to know about this from an anatomy or physiology standpoint, the motor neuron size. Remember, we're trying to stimulate not just sensory with neuromuscular electrostim. We're trying to stimulate the motor nerve. The motor nerve, the motor neuron in the type 1 is very small or narrow, but the motor neuron size is very large in the type 2B, and that's going to come back to help us out when we talk about rehab. So we'll come back and touch on that. All right. The function of the type one is more static and postural. The function of a type two B is more dynamic and explosive. As we said, the energy source for a one is more oxygen and the energy source for a type two B is glycogen or sugar. You wanna see a type two B muscle fiber at work, give a five-year-old a Snickers bar, a Coke, and a <laughs> playground. Watch them go at it for about 30 minutes and then crash. So again, under microscope, the type 1 looks more red because it has more myoglobin. The type 2B is more white. And then the type 2A, it actually looks a little pink. It's, it's lighter than the one because it has a little bit of myoglobin in it. And I, on our handouts, I gave you a kind of a, a picture of muscle cells. And if I were to walk up to you and, God forbid, you let me pull out a muscle fiber from your upper trap, if I just walked up to your shoulder and your neck and I just was able to pull out a muscle uh, fiber, you would see that skeletal muscles, for the most part, contain a mixture of all three types, 
there's type ones, there's type two A's and type two B's. And we can apply this to function. You've heard of Usain Bolt, right? Oh yeah. All right, fastest man in the world from Jamaica. He's lightning quick, right? Yep. He runs a hundred meters in about nine seconds, right? Yep. So he's one big type two B fast twitch <laughs> muscle fiber, right? right? Okay, then take marathoners. People, crazy marathoners. Love them to death. 26.2 miles these people run. Yeah. 26.2. So what kind of muscle fibers do those people need? They don't need the fast twitch. They, they don't need fast twitch in the B standpoint, like a sprinter. They need type 1s and type 2 A's. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. They need endurance. They need to be able to go long term. And they also need some speed and strength. So they really optimize the type 2 A. So think of that. When you think of type 2 B's, think of Usain Bolt. The only time he uses type ones is to stand and strike a pose yeah. for his five <laughs> seconds after he wins his gold medal, right? And then the, uh, uh, the marathoner is the type uh, 2A and type one. If you ask Usain Bolt to run a marathon, what's going to happen? He's going to collapse after like one lap. <laughs> he's going to be, yeah, he's going to be stuck and win after. I give him a couple miles. You say one lap. I say a couple miles. He's never going to make 26.2, but yeah. he, he would certainly be sucking wind because we have a mixture of these muscle fibers in our body. But depending on how we use them, how we work out, we have more type 1s or more type 2As or type 2Bs. Does that make sense? Totally. And I think if you could put a picture of me and Rick next to one another, one of us would look more like a type one and more of us would look more <laughs> okay. like a type two. Okay. So I'll let you put that one out. Well, we'll let the listeners decide who's who. Okay. So now let's talk about your posterior neck. So let's look at your back, the back of your neck. The back of your neck is more postural muscles. So think about it. Your postural muscles have to do what? They have to hold our head and neck up all day long, sometimes 12, 16, 18 hours a day. So your posterior neck, if I were to biopsy those, what do you think they would have a higher proportion of? Type one. Yeah, more endurance. You need, you need endurance to hold your head up all day long. Now, no, don't get me wrong. You certainly have a mixture. You need some strength. Your head, the average head weighs about 12 to 15 pounds. So you need some strength to hold it there. But majority, higher proportion of your posterior neck is more type one. Fair? Yeah. So now let's talk about your anterior neck. All right. All right. Now we're starting to get closer to our swallowing muscles. Let's move this along. That's what people are saying. Anterior <laughs> neck. What does it do? It nods, flexes, it, it rotates. Um, you know, um, it has a higher proportion of what? Type two. Type two. What, how long does it take to swallow? One second. So what do you need? Do you think you need more type ones or more type twos? Type twos. You better believe it. You better have type twos because if you don't, you're going to have a delay. And if you have a delay, you're probably going to have dysphagia. Is that fair? Fair enough. All right. Good enough. So I don't want to quiz you too much on these, but if I took several swallowing muscles, if we just started to talk, talk about certain swallowing muscles, which, which of them have a higher proportion of type two B muscle fibers? And there's research on this and I attached it to that handout. So people think I'm really pulling this out of thin air. They can certainly pull out the handout <laughs> yeah. with all those references. But if you think about the anterior digastric and myelohyoid, what's their job? But during that pharyngeal phase, they got about a second to what? Pull that hyoid and get it forward, upward, out of the way. And then everything else has got to move forward and upward out of the way for that bolus, right? Yep. And then think of those pharyngeal constrictors. What do they got to do? They got to milk that bolus down the back of your throat in a second. So these muscle fiber types, they're type 2, and they're 60 to 75% type 2. Now, of course, there's a little bit of type 1s in there as well, but primarily a higher proportion of type 2. 
Now, this is kind of a trick question, but not so much. What swallowing muscle has a higher proportion of a type one? Cricophrenius. Yeah, I, would, I think any sphincter in its own right, what do they do all day long? They sit there and hold tight, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and that upper esophageal sphincter or pharyngeal esophageal sphincter, it really is made up of three muscles. It's the most inferior part of that inferior pharyngeal constrictor, that cracopharyngeus in the middle, and the most superior longitudinal esophageal muscle fiber. So these three muscles make up that PSUES. But when you start looking at that cracopharyngeus in its own right, 60 to 70% of it under cadaver dissection was type 1. And it makes sense. What does it do? It stays closed. You swallow approximately once every two minutes, 720 times a day. It takes a second. So what are you doing the other minute and 59 seconds of every two? You need a tonic endurance type one muscle contraction. Fair? Yeah. All right. So now that we've related it, this type one and type two to swallowing musculature, let's start talking about recruitment philosophies. So during normal muscle recruitment, normal brain to body recruitment, Muscles contract, these muscle fibers are recruited according to the size principle. So this guy, uh, Henneman, Elwood, Jake and Elwood from Chicago, not that there's any relation to Jake to Elwood, but Elwood okay. Henneman in 1965 said, hey, look, the muscles are recruited based on the size principle. What does that mean? That during a contraction, muscle fibers relay messages to one another so that if a weak contraction is needed, only the type one muscle fibers are activated, right? And if a maximum contraction is needed, then a type two B muscle fiber would be activated, right? So how, how do I, I guess a good example would be, I got a chair next to me and it's got wheels, right? So if I walk around and I push this chair, my brain only tells my body recruit type ones for us because they have endurance and you can go all day with your type ones right? Yep. But if you and Rick and we get 10 more other people get on this chair and you ask me to push you uphill in a hundred degree Texas heat, then I'm going to need what? To recruit not just my type ones, but my explosive fast twitch type two Bs. And if I still can't do it, then I'm going to have to recruit some of you off that chair to help me push. Right. Does that make sense? Yes. All right. So let me kind of bust my profession a little bit. Okay. You've seen, you know, when you go into clinics, you're bringing in your fees equipment and you look in the therapy gym and you see these PTs back, maybe patients up in the wheelchairs, up against the parallel bars, and then they put this little thing on the ground called a restorator. It's a little exercise bike. You've seen these? Yep. Okay, perfect. So what happens? Russ brings a new patient down. He puts them in a wheelchair. He puts a restorator on his feet and tells the patient to start pedaling. Yep. And the patient pedals maybe about a minute. I got, you know, I got Mrs. Jones, a stroke patient. She pedals about a minute. And after a minute, she says, hey, Russ, I'm getting tired. Yep. And Russ is a real young, nice guy, new therapist. He says, hey, Mrs. Jones, what does he say? Take a break, <laughs> yes. right? Mrs. Jones just started to wear out her type ones. And right when she was getting that muscle burn and was ready to start working those type twos, what did Russ do as a young, immature therapist? He let her quit. He said, just take a break, Mr. Jones. I'm going to go talk to OT, and you just rest up. I got to see you for an hour so I can bill for my time here, and we're good, right? Yep. Not a smart move for us, right? Because right. what happens? To go from sit to stand, what does Mrs. Jones need? Does she need endurance, or does she need power? Power. She needs power. She needs strength. She needs the type 2 muscle fiber. But unfortunately, for the first two weeks, Russ just lets her go until she's fatigued. But because does do any of our patients, whether they're 
young or old, but majority of our geriatric patients, do they like to work for that muscle burn? No. Do they like to work to it? No. They don't want to do it. And they certainly don't want you telling them. <laughs> right. Younger, hey, I put my time in. PT, pain and torture. Right. OT, the other torture. Leave me alone. <laughs> right? Right. So look, they're, they don't want to do it. And that's why they stop. And that's the problem. What do we do when the patient's they just have limited movement. They, they just can't do it anymore, and they want to stop. How can we be more effective? And then what's ended up happening is that consequently, type 1 muscle fibers receive the primary benefit of low-intensity exercise found early in rehab, right? Because what do we do? We maybe have them do 10 leg raises on a mat, rest, maybe get 10 more. So we primarily work the type 1 muscle fiber. It's not until we find out that, holy cow, this patient can't transfer they can't walk, their sitting balance is bad, that we go, we really need to start working these larger type 2B muscle fibers, but they can only be exercised when dynamic activity calls upon their recruitment. So the way to do that is, man, let's have them running up and down the halls or doing plyometrics, jumping up and down stairs. But Lord, if Russ did that on some of his geriatric patients, you would take away his license and lock them up and right. duly noted, right? Right. So obviously early rehab, this is missed and quickly leads to disuse atrophy. And you've already said it. You know, if you don't use it, you lose, lose it. it, right? And basically, disuse atrophy refers to these muscles, uh, how they change after a period of reduced activity. Many conditions have a degree, uh, a degree of disuse atrophy. You could have a knee replacement, right? Surgical. And then you're not using your quad muscles, so they will atrophy. You could have pain because of immobility, and that's going to cause your muscles to atrophy. Neurological disease certainly can cause muscles to atrophy. And the obvious change is the decrease in the bulk of the type 2B. So remember what I said, we have less type 2B. So just remember, I, when I talked about sitting up in our bed, you know, we lost Rick, we lost you, they become weaker, they don't move as quickly, they don't have the strength and stability. This is a preventable and reversible muscle weakness due to aging or chronic illness or decreased activity. It's called sarcopenia. Remember what I said, those sarcomeres, those individual units, we just, they slough off. We start losing them. And a muscle can lose up to about 40% of its ability to generate force in four to six weeks. So imagine if you're in a cast for four to six weeks, you just lost 40% of your ability to generate force. Imagine if they're getting a feeding tube, NG or G tube, you know, are not swallowing. All right. You know, there's references about it. I use the Muller's reference of 2002, 40% of the muscle loses its ability to generate force. So if it takes four to six weeks to lose it, and some it takes six to 12 weeks to get it back. So how are we going to get it back when our patients are already weak and they don't want to work through that muscle burn? They don't want to keep exercising them when we want them to. And you can certainly see pictures of muscle cells. The type 2B on a healthy muscle, the type 2B is twice the size of a type 1. But I've got a picture on the handout that shows an atrophied muscle. And what you're going to see is the type 2 muscle fiber starts to look about the same size as the 1. They've just atrophied, and they don't have the strength and the power that they used to, and that leads to weakness, right? Yep. So here's the beauty of the powered muscle stimulator. What is the benefit to neuromuscular electrical stimulation? Is the neuromuscular stimulator doesn't know the difference between a type 1 or a type 2 right? Okay. I told you normal brain to body recruitment is recruit the type one first. And when the type one fatigues, then 
the body starts to recruit the type twos, right? Yep. And that allows us to keep our energy up so we can do things throughout the day. The beauty of neuromuscular electrical stimulation is that recruitment patterns with neuromuscular electrical stim are the reverse. Hear me out. It is the reverse of normal brain to body recruitment. So it is the reverse of normal exercise. The type 2B muscle fibers are the first to contract as the motor neurons of these fibers are much larger and they have a lower depolarization threshold, okay? Thereby causing these type 2Bs or type 2s to respond sooner to electrical current. So when we went back to that chart, I told you that the motor neuron size of a type 1 is very small, okay? So if I put electrical stim on your body, anywhere, let's just put it on your forearm. The first thing you're going to feel is what? Sensory stim, a tingle. That's your sensory nerve. That's okay. It's good. But what do we want? Motor. We want to elicit movement, motor. We want to stimulate that motor neuron. Well, the beauty of the motor neuron is it's the largest. And the largest motor neurons are the kings of the jungle. They eat the most. So after that sensory tingle gets stimulated, the next Motor neur- the next neuron that gets stimulated is the largest motor neuron. And guess where the largest motor neuron goes to? The type 2B. That's winner, winner, chicken dinner. All right. Now, why is that? Now, listen to me. This is important. If I can put electrical stimulation on your forearm and elicit a motor contraction immediately, right then and there, I am working your type 2B fast twitch muscle fiber. I'm working all your type 2s. I don't have to fatigue my patient. I don't have to put them through that fatigue, right? Now, they're still going to exercise. They're still going to recruit ones and twos, but I'm going to recruit twos right away, day one, and I'm not going to miss it in the first two weeks because I'm low-intensity Russ, right? Right. Low-intensity right. rehab. So, so the, I think the takeaway point for this is understand Henneman's philosophy of the size principle. And then know that the rules of neuromuscular electrical stim are the reverse of that size principle. Now, just to play devil's advocate, there is some research out there by Gregory, and I've got it in that handout, that says that some evidence suggests that recruitment patterns are not truly the exact reverse, but it's non-selective recruitment. So based on where you put your electrical stimulation, based on where you put your electrode, you may activate type twos, and maybe some type ones. But so what? Right. Who cares? I'm getting my type twos right now, day one, first day of therapy. And that's what I want to do. So what I've always asked therapists, especially a speech and language pathologist, is let's just say, I, I think I've heard it from Rebecca Levy, what is the best exercise for swallowing? She listed a bunch of exercises. We all agree that the best exercise for swallowing is to swallow. Yep, that was episode 13 that Rebecca went into all the exercises we have available. So what is ESP going to do? The effective swallowing protocol, it's going to facilitate a more effective, effortful swallow. We're going to facilitate the hyoid and larynx to get going in the right direction. And as that's happening, it's creating a pulling because the patient's not doing anything yet. We're using electrical stim to stimulate the type 2B fast twitch muscle fibers to get structures to move. And when you get the hyoid to move, because of everything that attaches to the hyoid, the tongue base is going to follow it. The epiglottis will retrovert. You'll stretch the laryngeal vestibule. You'll stretch the middle pharyngeal constrictor because the middle pharyngeal constrictor attaches to the hyoid. And we know with hyoid movement, we'll get some laryngeal movement because of the ligament attachment. 
And is if the hyoid and ligament are moving, it will, science supports relaxation of the PSUES. So now, if we can get enough electrical stimulation to depolarize those nerves enough, we can create enough movement to work the entire kinetic chain of that parental phase. And that is a brilliant idea for most, not all of your patients, that have physiological problems with those areas, okay? Yep. And we can talk more about that later, but let's get away from that right now. So the goal here, why we use electrical stimulation. Although the pattern of motor unit activation during NMES and neuromuscular electrical stimulation is under a little bit of contention, is it all type two or is it some non-selective ones with type twos? It doesn't matter. We have decades of research that shows it's an effective modality in the rehabilitation of impaired muscle function. And I think I listed eight to 10 articles on how we can use neuromuscular electrical stim to rehabilitate impaired muscle function. And when you have swallowing problems, it's movement related and it's muscle function. So let's address it. So by using neuromuscular electrical stim at the same time, Teresa, you got it. You don't do this alone. Right. Never do it alone. Never in isolation. If you use neuromuscular electrical stim at the same time of performing a voluntary exercise, it's an ideal way to maximize this therapeutic impact of taking advantage of this reverse in the recruitment philosophy, seeing that most of your swallowing muscles have a high percentage of the type 2 Bs. Is that fair? Yeah. So, so let me ask you, why don't you use it alone? <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> don't laugh. Someone, don't laugh. I'm going to get 20 emails about this. Okay. So look, you now understand the beauty of it, but you're right. I'm glad you're asking it because people just think you can just set it and forget it and we can just do it and it can yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. So basically, this is all you're doing. When we put surface electrodes on your body, you are stimulating the motor neuron for an efferent motor effect, right? You're getting the muscle to contract. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a sensory component because as soon as I turn it on and I start to turn it up, I'm going to ask you, tell me when you feel what? A tingle, right? That tingle is an afferent message going to your brain. Yeah, yeah. Right? Because you perceived the tingle. You felt it. Afferently, you felt that sensory stem. It went through your peripheral nerve, into your spinal cord, up to your brain, to your brain stem, to your thalamus that kicked it off to your cortex and said, yo, some tingling's going on down there, right? All right. Right. Those circuits, the afferent and the efferent, they never talk to one another. The only way they talk to one another is when you voluntarily tell that patient to assist exercise. And if they can't swallow, do a tongue press. If they can't tongue press, do a falsetto. Get them to move something that addresses the facilitary component that your neuromuscular electrical stim is starting to do. And you're going to have better recruitment of the type 2B earlier, sooner, faster, and it's just going to create for better rehab. So why do we want the afferents talking to the efferents? If you, what are we trying to do? We're trying to improve neuroplasticity. And that's the best way to do it. Sensory stim afferent to the brain. Well, the brain's not doing anything because we're just letting the stim run. That's not, it's just getting the muscle to, to fire and contract and relax. It's pumping some blood to it. But you're not going to see the strength benefit or the neuroplasticity benefit until you couple it with a repetitive resistive exercise. Got it. A repetitive resistive exercise. Does that make sense? Capiche. Now, listen, I, I hate to beat this into the ground, but the two most highly researched topics in rehabilitation have been in the last decade, and Emily Plowman does a great job of this. One is neuroplasticity. Yep. And two 
in my opinion, in your field, has been neuromuscular electrical stimulation. And let me just help you in over the 2,000 articles that have been written in the last decade. What are the two common themes to improve neuroplasticity and how neuromuscular electrical stim works best? The two common themes are to do a task-specific exercise or activity. I can't think of anything more task-specific for someone with a swallowing disorder than to swallow. Right. And then the next thing is to do something that's repetitive and resistant. And what we do with the ESP is we follow those orders. We do effortful swallowing exercises with ESP 60 to 72 up to 90 times in a 30-minute period because we want to bombard those type 2 muscle fibers. Does that make sense? Yep, totally. So what I ask speech therapists all the time, how many times do you get a person to do an effortful swallow in a 45-minute treatment? If you went back through your entire history of treatment and you treated every swallowing patient for 45 minutes, how many times do you get them to swallow? And we know we should be doing it. Uh, I think McCullough says 30 to 40 times. We would prefer more closer to 100 times, four sets of 25. But how do you get a patient to do that many? They get, worn, they get bored with it. They get worn out. Use electrical stim as a facilitatory technique, as a way to jumpstart it, to help them along. Even if you're only getting 10 to 15 effortful swallows in a treatment, think about it. 15 effortful swallows in 45 minutes that's one effortful swallow every three minutes. Would you ever go to a health club, lift the weight for one minute, set it down for three, and then wait three minutes and then lift it again, set it down for three, and do that for 40 minutes? I think when I was like nine months pregnant, I did. There you have it. And how did that do for you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so look, all we're trying to say is let's jump to those type 2B fast twitch muscle fibers. Quicker, faster, if it is a movement problem. But realize, even for sensory problems, Sensory motor electrical stimulation, neuromuscular electrical stimulation, stimulating a nerve to facilitate a group of muscles is a excellent way, if you're utilizing it correctly, to facilitate muscle control. Sounds good. So that's what we said. The result of a training effect of NMES effectively, preferentially trains the type 2B muscle fibers or the type 2 muscle fibers. Fair enough? Yep. Peace. All right. And the evidence based on that, I think I gave two articles. Um, one was by Dr. Snugger Mackler back in 1995, and then by Dr. Fitzgerald in 2003. And basically, these, I love these articles because they're, they're two articles. Dr. Snugger Mackler took 110 patients. She divided them up into two groups. 55 just got traditional exercise. 55 got extra, same exercises with neuromuscular electrical stimulation. And what she did is for six weeks, she treated them. And then what she did is she went back and she measured their quad strength, their thigh muscle strength, and compared it to their good leg, okay? So she took the 55 that did just the exercise and put them on this piece of equipment to measure their quad strength and found that the group that just did exercise for six weeks improved their quad strength about 57% of what their normal leg was, right? But the same group that did the same exercise but combined it with neuromuscular electrical stim they improved 70%. So in six weeks, they got 13% stronger. So if I can get someone's 13% stronger, faster, initiation, control, listen, I might as well do it. I'm doing the same yeah. exercises anyway. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, what's important to take out of this research is Fitzgerald tried to mimic that exact same research, but it took Fitzgerald 12 weeks and he only got 9% improvement with the group that did the exercise with E-STEM versus the group that just did traditional exercise. So now people start saying, well, look, 
maybe it isn't as all as it's cracked out to be. But the beauty to take, the takeaway points from both of this research is both groups, both research groups, the group that received the neuromuscular electrical stim had an increase in strength and improved their recovery of function, right? Both groups. Now, why did one group not respond as good as the other? Why did it take twice as long, 12 weeks versus six weeks? When you read this research, you're going to find out that Dr. Fitzgerald exercised his group with their knee in a straightened position, okay? Schneider-Mackler exercised their group in a knee-bent position. So what I'm going to tell you is how can we generate more force when we try to straighten our knee from a bent position or to try and straighten our knee from a straightened position? So just think about it. Yeah. If I had you sitting in a chair or standing and I said, kick this ball, you could obviously generate more force if you started with your knee bent than you did if you started with your knee straight, right? Right. So the beauty of these two articles is that it's not just the neuromuscular electrical stem. It's how you exercise them. So if their chin is buried in their chest, it doesn't matter how much hyal or laryngeal excursion you get. There's just no movement that can occur, right? But if you prop their chin up with a brace and you allow the hyoid to move, then you can get a greater kinematic effect. So it's not all about NMES. It's about NMES combined with exercise. That's going to allow the best strength and recovery of function. Fair? Yeah, cool. All right. So now, hopefully I stated my case of why to consider neuromuscular electrical stim to facilitate movement. And it can also be used as resistance, but maybe if your listeners want to hear more, we can we can dive into exactly what we do and maybe talk about um, what is FDA cleared and what's out there. So the next part of this, I think we want to talk a little bit about how AmpCare uses the effective swallowing protocol as a form of neuromuscular electrical stim, but you have to understand parameters, placement, and plasticity. Now, <laughs> we train on some speech language pathologists, and I'm told this a fair amount. Russ, I don't need to know how my engine works to drive a car. So why do I need to know about parameters? And I said, look, I agree. We don't need to know how our engine works to drive a car. But the Department of Transportation says we need a license to understand the rules of the road to drive that car as efficiently, as effectively as we can. So you need to understand that there are rules to electrophysiology. And parameters and placement will truly affect the plasticity of the brain as well as motor function. So I implore you all, if you're using any form of electrical stimulation, and I hate to jump onto this, this is a little bit of a soapbox of me. I said one of the most popular things researched in your field is neuromuscular electrical stimulation. Everyone throws that in under E-STIM. And I'm going to tell you, until you know the parameters that were used, the placement that was used, and how they used it with that exercise, uh, you don't know what you're talking about. You have to get all of that information. So realize the clinical applications of neuromuscular electrical stims, stimulation must consider numerous stimulation parameters before we can truly understand the degree of neuronal stimulation and resulting muscle contraction. Okay? All right. So... I think we should break here, but I'm going to go through it. Okay, wait. Yeah, let's break here for just one second. So 
you know, before you can even apply NMES or begin doing treatment with a patient with dysphagia, we need to figure out what's going on, right? And what better way to assess that than with a true high-definition fees imaging system from EndoHD, www.ndohd.com forward slash contact. True high-definition fees imaging, HD image display and capture, crisp color image, unsurpassed digital clarity, and you can view the details of patient anatomy with double the resolution of standard definition video. That's www.ndohd.com forward slash contact for more information. So listen, this is important. This is where people get worn out. There's about three types of current that I use in electrotherapy. I can use a pulse current, alternating current, and direct current. And in that three different types of current, there are multiple waveforms. We can use monophasic, biphasic, symmetrical, asymmetrical, biphasic. They can be continuous. And like I said, they can be pulsed. There are millions of different types of parameters that we can use in electrotherapy. I can use it for pain control. I can use it for muscle re-education. I can use it for edema reduction, swelling reduction. We can, we can use it to drive molecules of uh, medicine with direct current in through the muscle to help it heal. We can use direct current for denervated muscles. So there's a ton of different ways to use this stuff. And like I said, there's about at least nine different waveforms that we use in electrotherapy. And as a physical therapist, when I was treating outpatients and had my own clinic, I would treat 16 patients a day. And I would tell you at least 12 to 14 of them would get some form of electrical stimulation, whether it was for pain control or muscle reeducation, or, you know, for, like I said, driving medicine into a joint that might be swelling, right? Um, even for, oh my gosh, uh, urinary incontinency, we could use electrical stimulation. So there's just a lot of ways to use it. So now that you know that there are different types of currents and different kinds of waveform, just know that the symmetrical biphasic waveform, which I kind of put a picture of in your handouts, is the most commonly used waveform in electrical therapy. So we can kind of start there. And then what you really need to know next is the frequency. What is the frequency? It corresponds to the number of electrical pulses given per second. So think about it. I just hit my hand into my other hand. That pulse I'm going to drive a certain amount of pulses per second. And what we know from the literature is about 30 pulses is all you need to get a tentanic contraction. Tetany is that muscle to sustain contraction. Now, we can use higher pulses per second. We can do 50 or 100 if we're trying to stimulate a quad or a, a hamstring or even in some of your shoulder muscles. But we're talking Band-Aid thin muscles when you're talking swallowing. The anterior digastric and myelohyoid are very small muscles, so 30 pulses per second or 30 hertz or 30 pulse rate, they all mean the same, pulse rate, hertz, pulses per second, frequency, is sufficient to produce a tetanizing contraction. And there is some great data out there that the motor units of the larynx fire at about 30 to 35 uh, hertz. So we figure if that's the way your normal muscles fire, why don't we use the same amount for neuromuscular electrostim to make it more comfortable? So it's one of the reasons why we use 30 hertz. Every one of our parameters follows the rules of electrotherapy. So once you know how many pulses to give per second, then you have to know how long the duration of each pulse is. So if we're going to do a symmetrical biphasic, we have a pulse that's above neutral and a pulse that's below neutral, positive and a negative phase of each pulse. And what the research tells us is that higher phase durations, the positive phase or the negative phase, 
higher phase durations will yield deeper penetration of current. And with swallowing, we'd like to try to get our current to penetrate a little deeper because we have so many deep swallowing muscles. The problem with high phase durations is that the research tells us it yields pain or discomfort. So we can try to go with a high phase duration and it's, it's a good idea to try it, but I'm gonna tell you on most of our patients, what are we doing? We're putting it on one of the most rich and diverse sensory systems of the body. So they're just not gonna tolerate. So Ampcare chooses to use a very low phase duration. And these phase durations are measured in microseconds. So remember, I told you a pulse is 30 of those in a second. The phase of each one of those pulses is measured in microseconds. So we choose to use a low phase duration because it makes it more comfortable. After that, everyone knows about the intensity. That's the dial or the button that you will turn to increase the flow of electrical current. So whether you want to call it amplitude, intensity, milliamps, they all mean the same thing. Current, amplitude, intensity, or milliamps. That's the dial. And we use milliamps because an amp would leave an exit wound. That's a lot of current. So we use milliamps, all right? And then the other things you have to look at for a parameter is the ramp up and the ramp down. The ramp up and down is another way to manipulate this Current, and that's the beauty of a symmetrical biphasic current is you can manipulate it a little bit. And we chose to use a one second ramp. And what does that mean? A ramp is the, the ramp up is the length of time it takes that current to reach its maximum stimulation level, okay? So again, going back to current, a current is, think of a river. If the river's flowing real fast, you got high, fast or high current, that's high intensity. If the river's flowing really slow, that's low intensity, right? So. We know when the current comes on, if we just have it ramp right up to that maximum intensity, those patients started snapping their necks back. You know, we've been working on this, trying to do our due diligence since 19, shoot, I want to say 94. And in 1998, we kind of realized without a ramp, when that stem came on, those healthy normals, their heads were snapping back. And we're like, hey, why are you snapping your head back? <laughs> And they're like, Ross, it's pretty abrupt. That stuff, that stem comes on. And man, it just lets you have it. And I said, well, you told me how high to turn it up. I let you decide. Why is it so high now? And what we found out was it was just coming on and going right to that high amplitude or high intensity. So what we said is take one second to get there. It, we're going to use electrical stimulation for about five seconds. You only swallow. It takes one second. Why do I want five? I want to recruit as many type 2Bs or type 2s as I can. Hold it there for five seconds. Get them to swallow. Improve their speed, their timing. Decrease that delay. But why do I give them a one-second ramp? So it's a gradual recruitment of that electrical stim, and they don't feel like it's being they're being jolted. Again, we use the ramp as a form of improving comfort. And if you can make it more comfortable, patients will be more compliant, right? So the ramp up is- You can minimize whiplash. And, and prevent whiplash, you are 100%. <laughs> <laughs> the ramp down is just the length of time for it to go back down. So when you swallow, your hyoid larynx goes up and then it just falls back down. So the ramp down is the time for it to go back to zero. We use a zero ramp down. We wanna get that structures moving in the right direction. And then when the stem goes off, it just falls down, right? And it looks great. You can visualize it, you can feel it. The next important thing is the duty cycle. That's the ratio of on to off time. And this gets really important because you cannot sustain a motor contraction for a very long time. What did I say about these type twos? They can sustain some contraction, but they can't sustain it for very long, right? So that's why we only stimulate them for about five seconds. We wanna fatigue them and then we want them to do what? 
rest, and recuperate. So we start everyone with a one to five duty cycle. What does that mean? For every second it's on, it's off for five times that. So if we're on for five seconds, we're off for 25 seconds, right? That's one contraction every 30 seconds or two per minute, which is times 30 minutes, 60 stimulations. So that's what the patient does, 60 effortful swallows during stimulation on times. Now, when the patient starts to achieve some success, maybe swallows at about 80% of that. So they get 48 out of 60 swallowing attempts. Then we train you to lower that duty cycle to a one on, four off, five seconds on, 20 off. And that gets them about 72 stimulation attempts. And when they achieve 80% of that, then we go to a five on, three times off. So a five on, 15 off cycle, because that's one contraction every 20 seconds or three per minute, which leads you to 90 stimulations. So 90 stimulations in, th in 30 minutes, 90 effortful swallows in 30 minutes, you're going to work the type 2B fast twitch muscle fiber better than you've ever have. All right. So that's all we're telling you. And think about it. I'm trying to help everyone become more of an exercise physiologist. If I can't add more weight, and I really can't, I, I, I get a posture device to help provide some resistance, but when I can't add any more resistance, I can't add a weight to your hyoid or your larynx. What do I do? I'm going to add more repetitions. So as the patient makes progress, if I can't add more weight, we're just going to tell them to do more. And that's what we do. 60 to 72 to 90 swallowing attempts. And you're only going to do that after they have improved because there's no reason to try and force them to do 90 when they're not ready to do that. Fair enough? Yep, totally. And then my last statement about parameters and it goes to placement. I want to say electro placement is like real estate. It's all about location, location, location. Bottom line, I'm a little parched. <laughs> Bottom line, electro placement, listen to me, this is important. Electro okay. placement is like real estate. It's all about location, location, location. So you want the largest electrode to produce the most desired response. People think sometimes they look at our electrodes, we've heard across the social media platforms, maybe they're, look at those things, they're real large. They're large for a reason and they come in multiple sizes because we want to try and smother those neuromuscular junctions. Because when we do that, we will elicit a more comfortable contraction. And if you can elicit a comfortable contraction, the patient will take more intensity. And the more intensity you give them, it will recruit more motor units. And then you're going to see more movement. You'll experience it. You'll feel it, right? Yep. So that's the beauty of uh, the electrode size. And I'm going to tell you right now, here's the reason why we stay on the superhighways. Because we want to facilitate hyolaryngeal excursion. I don't know many patients that have decreased hyolaryngeal depression. And I've heard, well, hey, we want to put it on the infrahyoids to pull the hyoid down and get them to swallow. And that creates a resistance. It doesn't matter how high that hyoid goes. I can pull that hyoid through the roof of your mouth. That doesn't make you safe to swallow. What makes you safe to swallow is speeding up airway closure. And we're going to show you down the road, maybe if you invite me back on how we can improve laryngeal vestibule closure time. We certainly have some great evidence under floral, and we're getting other people to do evidence for us in Japan and overseas. So the bottom line to this is, I told you today, electrical stim, neuromuscular electrical stim can certainly improve strength. We know 13%, 9%, it doesn't matter. It's going to improve strength. So I don't want to improve the strength of my infrahyoids. I want to improve the strength of my supras. That's why Ampcare chooses to stimulate the suprahyoids. And we're going to move that hyoid and larynx very well. I challenge anyone to go to our website and look at it under floral, look at some of the still shots, see it, 
experience it when we're at ASHA, DRS, or Tisha's, um, and experience what's going on. And my research behind all this, read the Neuromuscular Guide to Electrical Stim. I think as Dr. Jerry Logeman is your godmother to fluoro, I would say Dr. Lucinda Baker is our godmother to Neuromuscular Electrical Stim. She's got a great spiral notebook. It's now on its fourth edition, and I don't want to give Dr. Baker all the credit. I think Bowman and Waters, they're all a part of it. Read that book. Uh, you really like electrical stim. You're really getting, you really like neuromuscular electrical stimulation. Read that book. Learn as much as you can about it. This modality is in your field to stay, and that goes to everyone. The treating clinician, key opinion leaders, it ain't leaving. We found a way to stimulate the type 2B fast twitch muscle fibers better and faster Combining that with an effortful swallow, making it more effortful. And if you do that, you're going to improve neuroplasticity. So now we can spend a few more minutes talking about neuroplasticity, or if you've had enough of me, we can bog off. No, I want to hear the neuroplasticity. Okay. So AmpCare chose, again, to follow these rules of electrotherapy to facilitate and strengthen these suprahyoids by basically using these parameters and placement ideas from uh, Dr. Lucinda Baker's book or spiral bound book. So... Again, as much as I appreciate research out there, there are textbooks written about this. So I think we start there and then we can branch off into some brilliant research. But I think some of the research uh, on electrical stimulation, we just need to do a better job of it right now. And hopefully we're gonna be a part of that. So how does ESP follow the guidelines of electrotherapy and exercise physiology? Well, I already told you, we use a frequency that's in line with the firing rates of motor neurons of the larynx, right? 30 hertz, 30 pulses per second. We know that's more comfortable, it's more adaptable, so we use it. We do allow some variable to go up to 50, but 30 is what we focus on. Understanding the relationship between intensity and phase duration. There is something called the strength duration curve. We all need to learn about it, read more about it. I'm not an expert in it, but the general rule is a low phase duration with a high intensity is gonna be much more comfortable than a high phase duration with a low intensity. That's basically what the strength duration curve tells you. There's books written about it, entire chapters written about it. We understand the relationship between intensity and phase duration according to the strength duration curve. And if you use it, it will make it more comfortable. And then we utilize a duty cycle that doesn't tax people, doesn't over fatigue them. It decreases the risk of metabolic fatigue. I don't wanna call you out. You just went skiing. You went down the slopes a few times. Are your muscles really sore? I'm dying still. Yeah, you're dying because you got to build up of lactic acid in those bad boys, right? Yeah. Because you over fatigue them. Yes, very much. Right? Yes. So we really don't want to over fatigue them. We want the muscles to rest and recuperate. We want to be able to pump blood flow to that area, circulate that tissue, get some of that out of there, right? Get some of that uh, a metabolic fatigue, that lactic acid out of the muscle. So we uh, employ a duty cycle of rest to recuperate. And then finally, we employ the principles of plasticity. And I don't want to get into too deep of this. To me, the keys of plasticity, you all know the use it or lose it, right? We talked about it. We follow it, and we call it the keys to the ESP principles of plasticity. What does ESP do? It creates an active, facilitatory technique. And if we can get the electrical stimulation, the neuromuscular stimulation to be high enough, we can actually create a resistance to the laryngeal vestibule. So we are facilitatory, and in some cases, we can be facilitatory as well as resistant to really make it an effortful swallow. We're repetitive, right? We're going to do it 60 to 72 to 90 times. 
in 30 minutes. So we definitely understand repetitions. And then what are we trying with intensity? We're trying to create a mechanical load to the oral, laryngeal, and pharyngeal regions. The higher we turn up this intensity, we're gonna show you pictures under floral. We get up to New York, you're gonna do it under fees. We're gonna show that we are moving structures. Uh, we're creating a mechanical load. And then specificity, I said it before. We've all said the best exercise for swallowing is to swallow. So let's get them to swallow, let's facilitate it, but also make it a more effective effortful swallowing exercise. And I'm gonna tell you patients that are feeling this 20, 30, 40 minutes later, therapists walk by their room. The speech and language pathologist walks by the room. You know what the patient's saying? Hey, SLP, I can still feel it. And you know what the SLPs are saying? Good, Yeah. because now you're more aware. We've woken up sensory stimulation, motor stimulations. We've woken up some muscle spindles. We didn't get into talking about those today, but we did a lot of that. <laughs> Salience, as far as feedback, you know, I, I think, look, there's some great feedback you can give. We use some proprioceptive feedback. We think that chin-to-chest exercise is a nice way to use a more safer way to, to strengthen that neck, push into that brace, feed that resistance. Hey, make it more effortful. Give them a task, not just swallow, but swallow and push into this. Meet the resistance of this brace. Difficulty, I'm going to tell you, if we turn this up high enough, you're going to see that laryngeal vestibule stretch open. We're going to create a stretch reflex into the laryngeal vestibule, and then we're going to make them close it. We believe you can perturbate the laryngeal vestibule. And we've got some emerging evidence to prove it. You invite me back, we'll talk about All it. All right. And then transference, look, effortful swallowing is great. Do it. But if they get bored with it, EMST has showed uh, success. LSVT has shown some improvements. Vocal exercises, falsettos, tongue presses. Do any exercises that you want, but incorporate it with ESP and work the type 2B. All right. That's my winner, winner, chicken dinner. All right. I love it. I'm done. All right. Can I go home? Not yet. No, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> what? Go. It's on you, All man. right. I, well, I don't, I don't know. It doesn't sound like you read my emails or anything, but... Um, so I have to ask everybody at the end of their presentation, what is one game-changing article or paper or researcher that has had a huge impact on your practice? All right. I'm calling you out. I did read your emails, okay. and I put them in my handouts. Okay. All I right. talked about them. Okay. I'm going to tell you from a PT standpoint that Schneider-Mackler protocol okay. and Fitzgerald, that just showed you there that electrical stem when compared against traditional exercise, electrical stimulation, neuromuscular electrical stim. And I think that's another thing we got to talk about. I don't like this word e-stim. E-stim could be TENS. It could be transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation, functional electrical nerve stimulation. There's a lot of different forms of electrical stimulation. We're talking neuromuscular. We're stimulating a nerve to depolarize it, to facilitate a muscle. And I think those two exercises, those two articles they were the ones that told me, hey, if the patients can't push themselves to work hard enough to put a mechanical load and do that one rep with max and let me load them with weights, I got to use electrical, neuromuscular electrical stim to facilitate them, to help them to go. So I think those two articles are brilliant. And I listed 10 more that follow that premise. But more importantly than research articles, and those go back a little ways, is read this textbook by Dr. Lucinda Baker, The Neuromuscular Guide to Electrical Stimulation, a practical guide. I'm going to tell you, it's on its fourth edition. And I, I'm, I hate to say it, it was on its maybe first when I first got out of school, but um, it's, it's, it's a good one. And it's a good read. It's an it's a, it's a easy read. 
It's a spiral bomb. It's not a textbook. It shouldn't make you scared. It's a, it's a <laughs> spiral bomb book. And I think you should. If you think, I'm going to tell you, there's someone listening to this podcast that's going to read that book, and in a few years, they're going to have it. They're going to figure out something even better than what we got. But hopefully, they'll be working with us, and we'll find them, and we're going to build what we're doing, and it's going to get only better, right? Awesome. I love it. So those will be the articles and then that textbook, and they're referenced in that handout. Perfect. All right. I love it. Any any parting words? Any parting words. <laughs> oh, Lord. You know what I mean? I, I always have a rustism. And here's my last rustism. The juice ain't worth the squeeze. What does that mean? The juice ain't worth the squeeze. You have to understand parameters to get the most effective contraction, right? You got an orange. You want to get the most orange juice out of that orange? You need the right parameters. I've been coming to your DRSs, to ASHES, to state conventions, to the UK Swallowing Research Group, to the European Society of Swallowing Disorders, to the World Dysphagia Summit. And I've been listening to people talk. And I'm telling you, parameters at this point, I've heard in different articles and in different presentations, ah, it doesn't really matter. I'm telling you, they do. So my takeaway points is, you want the juice to be worth the squeeze? Understand parameters, understand placement. You'll improve plasticity. God bless you. All right. Amen. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening. Coming soon from Speech Science, Talking With Tech. With me, Rachel Madel and Chris Bouguet. What are we going to be talking about? Stop feeling so daunted by technology. Push the button. You're not going to break it. Help people start implementing. Maybe listen to our podcast and go, well, I could try that tomorrow. Conversations with the thought leaders behind all this. I'd also love to hear success stories. If it's working for you, then maybe it could work for somebody else. Go to tech.speechscience.org, subscribe to our podcast, and check that site for exclusive content that you won't see anywhere else. Please listen carefully. Hi, I'm Matt Hott, one of the hosts of Speech Science, a weekly podcast bringing you all the information that you can handle related to speech sciences and disabilities. Ivan Campos, Lucas Stuber, and I interview leaders and difference makers in the field. Every Tuesday, we drop a new episode. You can find us on iTunes, Android, and on our website, www.speechscience.org slash speech science podcast. Join us as we try to find the answers to the question, what is communication? 